Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, the book of Revelation, chapters 9 and 10. Well, last week, actually, I guess not last week, a couple weeks ago, we opened Revelation chapter 9, and there we heard about a fallen angel symbolized by a star being given a key to the entry shaft into a deep place in the interior of the earth called the abyss. And it is occupied by rebellious spirits that I think we can rightfully label as demons. A king ruled over the abyss's inhabitants and the name given to him was Abaddon. That in Hebrew means destroyer. So when the fallen angel opened up the shaft, smoke billowed out and in mixed in with that smoke were legions of these demons in the form of grotesque locust-like creatures. They had human faces, laurel wreaths on their heads, long hair, teeth like a lion, bodies like war horses, and with a stinger in their tails that inflicted the pain equivalent to the sting of a scorpion. Interestingly enough, their stings did not kill. Rather, they just hurt relentlessly and no balm and no medication seemed to be able to relieve the agony. God set boundaries on them in that this plague of locusts would only operate for five months. And they were not allowed to harm those who had been divinely sealed. That is, a group of believers who were on earth during God's judgments, but were supernaturally protected from harm. The only sealed people mentioned thus far in Revelation is the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel. So I must assume this is who is being described. Now what can be so very challenging about this chapter, chapter 9, is that indeed it uses many symbols. But John also uses real world creatures and examples to try and describe these otherworldly critters all right, and, and, and events. So the symbolic is mixed with the literal and it can be hard, frankly, at times speculative when trying to separate these events and beings and, and their meaning into categories of either symbolic or literal. So for example, these locusts aren't actual locusts but rather they have the characteristics of locusts in that they swarm and they fly. At the same time they have a very uncharacteristic attributes for locusts in that they don't harm vegetation. But they do sting. The judgment of locusts is called the first of the three woe, W-O-E, woe, judgments. It is simultaneously the fifth of the trumpet 
judgments. So the idea is that the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh trumpet judgments are especially horrible, so they are given the nickname of the woe judgments. I'm highlighting this so it's clear that these three woe judgments are not seen as additional to the 21 seal, bowl, and trumpet judgments that would have given us a total then of 24 judgments. So let's reread part of Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9. Um, we're going to start at verse 12. So if you have a complete Jewish Bible, <clears throat> uh, it will be page 1541, 1541. 1541. And we're going to start at verse 12. The first woe has passed, but there are still two woes to come. So the sixth angel sounded his shofar, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the gold altar before God, saying to the sixth angel, the one with the shofar, release the four angels that are bound at the great river Euphrates. And they were released. And these four angels had been kept ready for this moment, for this day, month, and year, to kill a third of mankind. And the number of cavalry soldiers was 200 million. I heard the number. Here is how the horses looked in the vision. The riders had breastplates that were fire red, iris blue, and sulfur yellow. The horses' heads, they were like lion's heads. From their mouths issued fire, smoke, and sulfur. It was these three plagues that killed a third of mankind. The fire, the smoke, the sulfur issuing from the horses' mouths. For the power of the horses was in their mouths, but it was also in their tails. For their tails were like snakes with heads, and with them they could cause injury. Now the rest of mankind, those who were not killed by these plagues, even then did not turn from what they had made with their own hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols made of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they turn from their murdering, their involvement with the occult and with drugs, their sexual immorality or their stealing. So now the sixth judgment comes, which is also the second woe. And we're told that a voice comes from these four horns of the gold altar before God. Now the gold altar, as it is with the temple on earth, is the incense altar. However, the altar of burnt offerings on earth also has four horns. So perhaps it is that the material that the altar of burnt offerings in heaven is gold instead of the stone like it's used on earth. Either way, the horns represent power. That there is four of them symbolizes an all-inclusiveness. Includes 
essentially four is the symbolizes the four points of the compass, the whole world. It's interesting that at the earthly temple, the horns were a place of asylum for criminals. That is, a criminal could rush to the temple altar, grab hold of one of its horns, and they could not be arrested for as long as they stayed there. I mean, for example, we we read in First Kings chapter two that Joab rushed to the altar and he grabbed hold of one of its horns so that King Solomon wouldn't kill him. In other words, the altar was a place of sanctuary from the wrath of humans and of God. In Exodus 21, we read this, 21.14, But if someone willfully kills another after deliberate planning, you are to take him even from my altar and put him to death. So while sanctuary at the altar is available for some crimes, it's not available for murderers. And one of the things we must remember about the altar is that it was holy. So no layman was permitted to touch it. Only priests and properly purified Levites. So if a man sought sanctuary at the altar, at the same time when he came and grabbed the horns, what did he do to it? He defiled it. But in the case of Revelation 9, 13, and 14, the horns of the altar became a voice. And that voice refuses to offer sanctuary. And instead, it releases hostile wrath instead of protecting people from it. In fact, when we consider that in chapter 6, upon the breaking of the fifth seal, we hear of believing martyrs abiding under the altar of God and they are pleading with him to avenge their murder and God says they have to wait a little while longer but now we have that same altar that they're under commanding wrath so I think the connection is clear enough that we should see that this is the moment when that wait is over. God is avenging now, or at least beginning the process of avenging, the killers of the martyrs in carrying out the justice that's called for in Exodus 21.14. Well, the voice from the altar commands the release of four angels who are said to have been bound at the great river, which is the Euphrates. Now, to be bound means to be restrained, usually against one's will. So much like the demons of the abyss and their, their leader, Abaddon, who were bound against their will, restricted against, these will, against their will, so too these four angels were restrained and restricted from carrying out what they wanted to carry out, wrath on mankind. They were restrained until the precise moment 
that the Lord had preordained, as verse 15 of chapter Revelation chapter 9 says, and they were released, and these four angels had been kept ready for this moment, for this day, for this month, for this year, to kill a third of mankind. Why the mention of the Euphrates River? Well, this 1,700 mile long river is the longest in Western Asia. And it carries with it significance as regards what is going to define the territory that will eventually be given over to Israel to occupy. In Genesis 15 we read, Genesis 15:18, That day Adonai made a covenant with Avram. I have given this land to your descendants from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. Now often this statement from Genesis gives us the sense that the Euphrates is just merely the northern boundary marker. Of, of Israel's promised land. But what we have to understand is this boundary extends to the river's entire length. Not just part of it. Its entire length. So the northern boundary of ideal Israel, the Israel it eventually will be, is some 1,700 miles long. 2 Samuel 8.3 David, on his way to establish his dominion as far as the Euphrates River, also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehov, king of Tzovah. See, King David understood the promise made to Abraham. And he intended to bring that promise to realization if he could. The land that modern Israel occupies today it's just a fraction of what it's going to eventually be. The heated disputes over the Golan Heights and the West Bank and Gaza this represents just a tiny portion of the land of future Israel. Now the purpose of these four angels is to lead to the killing of one third of all mankind. We think about that number. In today's terms, we'd be talking probably about two and a half billion, billion with a B, people. And the tool that's going to be used to accomplish that is a demonic army of 200 million. Now, whether these are 200 million actual demons or they are 200 million humans being demonically empowered can be debated endlessly. We are not given a description of these beings. Only the horses on which they ride. Further, 200 million is meant as a round number not as a precise number. See, we see large and small round numbers used throughout the Bible. Yet neither should we regard the 200 million as just symbolic. It means 200 million. Regardless of a million more or fewer, 
this devastating war machine of 200 million, this is enormous in size and is a force as unstoppable as a tsunami. That these four angels were rebound, were, were, were bound, they were restrained next to the river Euphrates means that the vast army that comes to kill so much of mankind comes from areas that are geographically located near and around the Euphrates River. But it also means that because the Euphrates is considered by God as defining the full extent of Israel's northern boundary, then it becomes clear that the primary target of this vast army is Israel. Certainly one-third of mankind does not currently and will not at the time of this judgment live in Israel. But the collateral damage caused by this invasion is going to spill over into the rest of the world and it's going to result in the death of billions. How exactly this happens to this point in Revelation we're not told. Well, starting in verse 16, the horses, not their riders, the soldiers, the horses are described. And we're told that they had breastplates that were red, like the color of fire, and included also the color of blue, like irises, in yellow, like the color of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths shot fire and smoke and sulfur. Now let's pause for a second. Plainly, these are not actual horses. Rather, the terms John is using to describe what he sees are confined to things that commonly existed in his day. So the soldiers came sitting or riding atop something that John calls horses because the only thing soldiers could ride upon in his day outside of chariots were animals like horses or camels. So like the so-called locusts that swarmed out of the abyss these 200 million soldiers horses were not actual biological horses. But we should also notice that these soldiers were not foot soldiers that marched in formation from all the places that they would come, that they will come. Instead, they came riding atop something fearsome that to John could only be understood as strange beasts that could best be communicated to his contemporaries as horses. Now we're told that the power of these horses, the part of the horses that inflicted the damage, was both their mouths and their tails. That is, both the front and the back of the horse. And it was from the three plagues, we're told, of fire, smoke, and sulfur, that these horses emitted that one-third of mankind was killed. So whatever the fire, smoke, and sulfur represent, each of these here is called a plague. The tails of the horses are said to be like snakes with heads and that they caused great injury. Now in the Bible, snakes, serpents, are symbolic of evil. 
that the serpents within the tails of the horses have heads, this means they're intelligent beings. How these caused injury, now note this speaks of injury, not necessarily death. All right, It's not spelled out. However, since the chief characteristics of Satan are as a liar and a deceiver, it may be that this is what causes such great harm. You know, something else to notice is that the power of the horses is said to be in their mouths as well as in their tails. And since the term mouth is used, and since the mouth is used for speaking, my best conclusion is this is referring to false prophets and others who speak against God and His truth. Perhaps they are bringing with them the false words of the Antichrist. Nonetheless, it seems that promoting falsehood is what is being envisioned by this symbolism. But with all the killing and destruction that God's wrath is bringing on a scale not seen since the Great Flood, it may seem that spreading lies and deceit is not nearly as dangerous or important as the indiscriminate brutality of military conflict. I mean, from a purely physical standpoint, that's no doubt true. But from a spiritual standpoint, deception is the bigger enemy than physical death. It was from the enemy's lie that Adam and Eve fell. It was from the enemy's lie that idolatry arose from among God's people and it cost Israel hundreds of thousands of lives as God punished them for turning to other gods. It is idolatry that has and continues to be the chief sin that makes people rebel against God. And it lays out the broad road that leads to eternal death. Deceit in the Bible is often symbolized and times even personified as darkness. God's word is given to us as light that illuminates the truth in order to counteract the darkness of deceit that deceives this world. And yet, even with the truth so readily available, the vast majority of all humans throughout history, especially in the 21st century, choose darkness over light, falsehood over what is real. So when all is weighed, deceit is the bigger enemy than the business end of a gun. A gun may take your life. Deceit can take your soul. And so these horses of verse 19 are the bearers of deceit. And millions, probably billions of souls are going to be lost from the lies that they spread. In fact, I think 
my understanding on the meaning of the mouths and the tails of the horses purveyors of, uh, purveyors of deceit and darkness is verified by verse 20 which speaks about idolatry as being continued among mankind even as countless millions fall to the supernatural wrath of God and to what apparently is a vast armed conflict. See, this is a theme that we see throughout Revelation. That is, despite it becoming obvious that the catastrophes and the cosmic events happening in sequence cannot possibly be random or or natural. And the undeniable fact is they precisely will match what the Bible predicts. Still, still, most of mankind will shake their collective fists at God and double down and their rebellion and disbelief rather than repenting and asking God for mercy. So verse 20 says that two-thirds of the earth's population that has survived these horrors of God's wrath to this point even then would not turn from their idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood nor did they turn from their murdering, nor from the use of drugs and all other kinds of perversion, nor from stealing from one another. Thus the plagues were intended to be seen by earthlings as warnings from heaven, warnings that were not heeded by most. Now certainly, some are going to come to belief as a result of all this. Some will. But they're not sealed. They're not protected. And one can project a little bit. They would no doubt become instant targets for those who are so hardened that they willfully go on rebelling. I mean, one can only imagine a bounty on God worshippers at this time since God will without doubt be considered an enemy of humanity. Is he not in some cases already? I mean, to continue worshipping idols in the midst of all this calamity represents a kind of comical irony. As stated in several places in the Old Testament, these sculpted pieces of, of wood and stone and precious metals can't walk or see or hear. But as a result of worshipping these fictional gods, neither can their creators or their worshippers see or hear. Because idolatry blinds people to the truth. And in turn, it hardens them against God. Repentance is almost impossible for idolaters. And so their eternal death is almost inevitable. Simply look at the Pharaoh of Egypt as an example of the stubborn self-destruction of an idolater. To quote Charles Lee Feinberg, the ungodly are incorrigible in their murders and sorceries and immorality, 
punishment does not soften wicked hearts. Only the love of God can. Let's move on to Revelation chapter 10. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Still on the same page, page 1541, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Revelation chapter 10. Well, next I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And he was dressed in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs like columns of fire. He had a little scroll flying open in his hand. And he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he shouted in a voice as loud as the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, seven thunderclaps sounded with voices that spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up the things, the seven thunders said. Do not write them down. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted his right hand towards heaven and he swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. There will be no more delay. On the contrary, and the days of the sound from the seventh angel when he sounds his shofar, the hidden plan of God will be brought to completion. The good news as he proclaimed it to his servants, the prophets. Well, next the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go and take the scroll lying open in the hand of the angel standing on the sea and on the land. So I went over to the angel. I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it. Eat it. It will turn your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Well, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand. I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey, but after I swallowed it, my stomach turned bitter. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Notice that during the first set of seven judgments that we studied, that was the sealed judgments, The first six of the sealed judgments occurred one after the other in chapter 6. Back in chapter 6. But then there was this interlude that that was chapter 7. And then with chapter 8, the sealed judgments pick back up again with the words, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal. So it is that we find this same pattern with the seven trumpet judgments. In chapter 8, the seventh and final of the sealed judgments is announced. The first judgment, uh, trumpet judgment happens with six of the seven trumpet judgments announced and happening one after the other in rapid order. Then we have this interlude that is chapter 10. And this continues well into chapter 11 and then the the last, the seventh, of the trumpet judgments is announced. However, it's important that I remind you 
that when this apocalypse was, was written by John, and for another thousand years, there would be no such things as chapters and verses in the Bible. Old or New Testaments. So for us in our day, see, there's this kind of mirage that occurs when we read the Bible. Of there being this hard stop at the end of a so-called chapter. And a hard start at the beginning of the next so-called chapter. But in reality, no such things as chapters exists in the Bible. They are late man-made additions. See, adding in chapter markings, they were inserted somewhat arbitrarily, by the way. It can make it feel to the reader like, like time has passed, or the scene has changed, or one subject is ending and another one is beginning. But when you remove the chapter markings, it all just flows together very naturally as originally intended. Now, an interesting feature of this new interlude, this chapter 10, is that the same pre-tribulation doctrine adherents who say that the interlude of chapter 7 that occurs between the 6th and the 7th of the sealed judgments means that chapter 6 and 7 were out of order and therefore chapter 7 has to be put before chapter 6 and oddly they do not insist upon the same treatment for the interlude of chapter 7 uh, chapter 10 rather chapter 10 even though this interruption also occurs between two judgments only this time it's the trumpet judgments trumpet judgment 6 and trumpet judgment 7 in other words they don't apply this interlude this this idea of reversing chapters doesn't apply to the trumpet judgments they don't use the same criteria regarding the use of an interlude that they use for the seal judgments why not because just as reversing chapters 6 and 7 is the only means to make their predetermined end times timeline work out properly, they must also leave chapters 9 and 10 as they are to make their end times timeline work out properly and in fact ignore the interlude. What's the difference between the two interludes? Nothing substantial. But such is the nature of dubious man-made doctrines that they just can't hold up when taking the Holy Scriptures as they're written. So just as we're not, we did not agree to reverse chapters 6 and 7 in Revelation, we're also not going to bother chapter 10. Either these interludes are indeed actual chronological interruptions in a particular series of judgments, or perhaps these are additional things that are happening more or less in parallel with their respective series of judgments. I confess I don't have a rigid opinion on which option that might be. Now the first verse of chapter 10 introduces us to this mighty angel who makes another appearance. Earlier in Revelation 5, it was this mighty angel who, while at God's throne in heaven, asked who's worthy to open the scroll that was in the ancient one's hand. 
And we learn that his appearance to John was that he was dressed in a cloud, had a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like columns of fire. Who is this angel? Who is it? First, I want to address an anomaly present here. And I suspect some of you may have caught it already. Only if you have a complete Jewish Bible will it describe this mighty angel as having legs like columns of fire. All other translations have him as having feet like columns of fire. Without doubt, the complete Jewish Bible has it as it's intended. Let's start with the logical sense. Since when can we compare feet to pillars? Feet look anything like pillars? Nope. Feet don't look anything like pillars. They don't operate like pillars. But legs do. The reason for this textual anomaly is that in Greek there are separate words for legs and feet. With podes, meaning feet, well, that's what's found in the Greek New Testament manuscripts. But in ancient Hebrew, there's only a single word that is used for both feet and legs. Reglaim. Reglaim. John was a Galilean Jew. He thought in Hebrew. So somehow or another, when writing down this vision, either John or a scribe chose, since they were doing it in Greek, chose the Greek potis, when clearly skele, legs, was more correct. Now second, as we look at the various descriptive attributes of this mighty angel, we see him dressed, clothed, in a cloud. See, this is an Old Testament description of God. He had a rainbow over his head. This matches the description of the ancient one sitting on the throne with a rainbow over his head from Revelation chapter 4. His face shining as the sun. That's found in Revelation 1.16. And yet, this mighty angel is not said to be God and not said to be the Ancient One, and not said to be the Lamb. The only way to square all these attributes and come up with the answer to the question of who this mighty angel is, is to assume that he is the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament. Or as it more accurately states in the original Hebrew in the Tanakh, the angel of Yehovah. In the Old Testament, this angel speaks with the authority of God. God's very attributes and appearances are assigned to this angel. Because of most Bible commentators' strict adherence to a very rigid Trinity doctrine, they say this mighty angel has to be Christ. Which is, by the way, also the same thing they say about the angel of the Lord. Has to be Christ. To this I strongly disagree. The angel of the Lord is, like the Shekinah, another manifestation of God, separate from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When Dr. Feinberg was asked why he assigns Christ 
as the person of the mighty angel. He answers this, He appears as an angel because reference is made to conditions in Israel before their Messiah had been revealed in incarnation to them. What? How how can that be? Revelation reveals first and foremost that Christ is already risen. He's in heaven with God as the Lamb. John's visions he's getting are a glimpse of the future, not the past. Old man-made doctrines die really hard, don't they? And some of the most brilliant, brilliant Bible scholars will at times offer some of the most fantastic solutions to make traditional doctrines fit with Scripture. See, we also find that this mighty angel had a little scroll in his hand. This is not the scroll with the seven seals that only the Lamb was able to open. This is something different. Now we're going to discuss that a little bit more in our next lesson. The angel planted his left foot on the land, his right foot on the sea. Why? This was to show sovereignty over all the earth. This prepares us for when that strange, ungodly beast emerges from the sea in later chapters. And it reinforces that God rules above even the halls of hell. Well, this mighty angel shouts as loud as the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, seven thunderclaps sounded. And they too had voices that spoke spoke words now thunder is usually a precursor to God making an appearance a theophany and or to God bringing judgment some say that the angel shouting like the roar of a lion is proof that this mighty angel is Christ because he is also called the lion of Judah I can't abide in that Because at this point in Revelation, Christ is known by one thing only. The lamb that appeared to be slain. Shouting like the roar of a lion, in my opinion, is more like a metaphor for a loud, terrifying roar of a lion as he captures his helpless prey. However, I think the main point being made is that the voices heard are voices of deity or voices that are directed by deity. John says he was about to write down what the divine voices said when he was told not to. See, John's primary job since the first chapter of Revelation has not been to interpret these visions but merely to faithfully record what he sees in them. Revelation 1.19 So write down what you see, both what is now and what will happen afterwards. John being told to seal up what he heard, the seven thunders saying, reminds us of Daniel being told the same thing in Daniel chapter 12. Did John understand what he heard?
probably to a similar degree as he's understood all else he's been told. However, this knowledge, think about this, this knowledge died with John as God did not want us to know about it in advance, whatever it is. In verse 7, this mighty angel that in the Old Testament goes by the title the angel of the Lord, he lifts his right hand towards heaven and he swears by the one who lives forever and ever. The One, the Ancient One, God the Father, these are all names and titles for the same person of God. So it shouldn't be difficult to imagine that the Angel of the Lord, a separate and different manifestation of God, would vow in the name of the Father. Yeshua did similarly, as He regularly prayed to God the Father asking for the Father's will to be done in Him even though He too was God. The mighty angel has sworn to carry out that which God has commanded. And what He has commanded is to carry out His assignment with no further delays. When the seventh trumpet sounds, the hidden plan of God will be brought to its completion. And the hidden plan is the good news that Christ forgives sins. And He makes atonement for those sins that we've already committed. But to better understand the significance of this act of swearing by this mighty angel, we need to refer back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 7, and see something almost identical occurring. So in Daniel... 12 verses 4 through 9 we read this think about what we just read in Revelation seal it up John listen to this but you Daniel keep these words secret seal up the book until the time of the end many are going to rush here and there as knowledge increases and then I Daniel looked and I saw in front of me two others one on this bank of the river and the other on, the, on its other bank. And one of them asked the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river, how long will these wonders last? And the man dressed in linen who was above the water of the river raised his right and left hands towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time that it will be when the power of the holy people is no longer being shattered that all these things will end. I heard this. I could not understand what it meant. So don't feel bad. <laughs> so I asked, Lord, what's going to be the outcome of all this? But he said, go your way, Daniel. For these words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. So what we see happening now in Revelation is what Daniel was told would happen at the time of the end. Daniel could make no sense of it. Because too much had, too much had to happen. In between his time, exile in Babylon in the 500s, B.C., 
And when the events of Revelation, many still future to us, actually start coming about. See, what must become clear to the church about the secret plan of God is that the final redemption is coming. But so is judgment and wrath. And the two of them go hand in hand. Mercy is for those who love and obey God. But judgment is for those who do not. There's no middle ground. There's no halfway point. In reality, what we see happening here in Revelation fulfills a promise made by Jehovah even centuries earlier than Daniel. In Deuteronomy, he promised this to Moses. In Deuteronomy 32, chapters 39 to 43. See now that I, yes, I am he. There is no God beside me. I put to death, I make alive. I wound and I heal. No one saves anyone from my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as surely as I'm alive forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and I set my hand to judgment, I will render vengeance to my foes. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood. My sword will devour flesh. The blood of the slain and the captives, flesh from the wild-haired heads of the enemy. Sing out, you nations, about his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will render vengeance to his adversaries. And he will make atonement for the land of his people. Yes, the vengeance of the martyrs under the altar in heaven is now underway at this point in Revelation. That's what we're reading about in Revelation chapter 10. The oath that the mighty angel is making is to say, delays over. The time for giving a little more time for people on earth to repent and be saved is over. You know all those signs we, you see sometimes on street corners, you see them in movies, the end is near? Chapter 10 says the end is now. That's a scary thought. See, there's no lack of pastors and Bible teachers and religious hucksters who pronounce that they have a word from God telling them the date of the end. Or that they have discovered a secret code in the Bible and they have decoded it and they know the time of the end. And for a few bucks they'll tell you what it is. I suspect that because God has given John so much information about the end times, but upon hearing some other information, John was told not to divulge it. That very possibly, that information which is held back is about revealing that time. Back in chapter 9, we were told that four angels bound, that were bound at the Euphrates, at the Euphrates had prepared to act at a very specific moment in history. Right down, it says... 
to the day, the month, and the year. That date was set by God long before. Can there be doubt that the date for all the events of Revelation, including Messiah's return and the end of history as we know it, has also been set down to the day, the month, and the year. If this is true, then all that is happening right now that we see playing out on our TVs is a divine process that is more or less on autopilot. Nothing's going to stop it. No one will be permitted to know the moment until that process reaches its climax. And no amount of guessing is going to lead any among us, any human, to that knowledge. Matthew 24, 32 through 42. Now let the fig tree teach you its lesson. When its branches begin to sprout and leaves appear, you know the summer is approaching. And in the same way, when you see all these things, you are to know that the time is near. It's right at the door. Yes, I tell you that this people will certainly not pass away before all these things happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But when that day and hour comes, nobody knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, only the Father. For the Son of Man's coming will be just as it was in the days of Noah. And back then, before the flood, people went on eating and drinking and taking wives, becoming wives, right up until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know what was happening until the flood came and swept them all away. It'll be just like that. When the Son of Man comes, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, and the other one will be left behind. There will be two women grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other one will be left behind. So stay alert, because you do not know on what day our Lord will come. We'll finish up chapter 10 and get into chapter 11 next week.